Hi guys, welcome back to my Steps to Sobriety, the show on YouTube and on podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is another fantastic day for an interview. And I have got an author with me whose book uh, immediately caught my attention. And I'm so pleased that I have got CJ Grace with me today. And we're going to explore her journey, which, like so many journeys that I bring onto this show here, is harrowing, scary, but people have learned from it and came out a very different person than they were when they started. And that is really the, the most beautiful outcome of anything that can happen to you, that you grow stronger and better. So CJ, thank you so much for coming onto my show. I'm really, really grateful for that. I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> CJ, your story um, is starting a little bit later in life when you had been established, when you had been um living a life that you were actually very happy with. Tell us a little bit um, about uh, about maybe your earlier years. How did it all start? What did you want to be when you grow up? I always wanted to be a journalist. Cool. That was my profession that I ended up yeah. doing. And in a way, I felt I was living a charmed life because I got that dream job with the BBC. Yeah. I was interviewing celebrities, people who made the news. Yeah. And then after that, I got a transfer to work for China Radio International in Beijing, which was a really exciting place to be. It was the changeover where they were starting to move away from the Soviet Union as their main partner to wanting to have a bit more rapprochement with the West. So from Russian being the second language there, they were moving towards English being a, the language that everybody wanted to learn. So working for the English language section of Radio Beijing was a really cool place to be at the time. It was exciting. When was that? That was in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. And wow. It was a pivotal time when they were opening up um, and things were actually in some ways freer than they are now uh, in, in China, to say the least. Uh, and it was there that I met my husband. It was a fairy tale falling in love. We got married. We thought if we could put up with living in China together under the communist regime, we could put up with anything. And so yeah, fast forward my 25th wedding anniversary was one of the best ever. I mean, we always had had ups and downs, just like any married couple. But I was pretty happy with life. And we were in Hawaii at the time. We'd been able to afford a second home there. I thought life was great. I had two children, two grown children that I loved. Everything was, was peachy. But then, only two years later, my life was in tatters. I had found out that he had a long-term relationship going with somebody that was half his age and didn't want to give her up. And then also I got breast cancer, which was my second occurrence of that. And it was a worse occurrence than, than the one I'd had seven years prior. So it was like a huge bad dream. I was, was opening the door to a 
a brave and terrifying new world. And I didn't really know at the time how to handle it. But looking back on that, now that I'm some years away from that fateful day when I found out about his affair on the text, how boring and cliched could it be, but I found out about it from a text. I wasn't spying on his phone and he needed to have his phone transferred to a new one because the phone broke and who would text just as I was setting up the phone for him? The girlfriend. So it was, it was pretty dreadful. Um, and I decided after a while, I decided that, well, he isn't going to give her up. If he would have given her up, I think I probably would have stayed with him and it would have been a mistake for both of us, but that's what I would have done. But I couldn't deal with uh, having somebody else in the relationship like that. He, he even offered me a part-time marriage position, which I turned down <laughs> because, you know, I was the administrative wife that took care of details. So I don't know whether he really wanted to let me go that, that easily, you know, but, uh, you know, it, it was just one of those things. And uh, the more I found out about it, the more I realized that infidelity is drearily common. It is not unusual and as we have a longer lifespan, it seems like it's even more common than before because, uh, you know, people have more opportunities. And with the advent of Viagra and ED drugs, men can have sex until they kick the bucket, basically. So there's a lot more opportunity for, for those kinds of things to happen. So I decided that I needed to look after my own interests. That was my number one thing. Because when, when something like this happens, you realize that your partner is, is no longer looking after your interests. That's just the way it is. And if he isn't doing it, then you have to do it. And my mantra throughout this, even though I had some deep, dark days, to say the least, was that the best revenge is to get past the need for it. I knew right away that to get stuck in this revenge blame cycle was not going to do me any good at all. It's a very, very toxic place to be that doesn't allow you to move on to something better. Um, and I wrote about some of the things I was feeling. And from the writing, I ended up having a book. And I didn't intend to write a book. The reason why it came about was that um, my ex and I had a business together and we had publications as part of the business that we were doing. And we went on a Kindle conference about how to make books into Kindle. And one of the exercises was to write an outline for a book. And just out of nowhere, my adulterer's wife book came about. I hadn't intended to write it, but there it was. I wrote the outline. I wrote the chapter headings. I wrote the subheadings for those chapters. And then as, as I went around and talked to other members of that particular Kindle group, uh, people had a very positive view of what, what I was doing. They thought there was definitely a need for it. So out of that Kindle conference came my book, Adulterer's Wife, How to Thrive Whether You Stay or Not. 
And even though I had been a journalist for the BBC, I'd never written a book before. I'd written short pieces. I'd done a lot of um, broadcasting, but I hadn't actually written a book. And amazingly, it just came out of me. And then somebody said to me, well, you should write more. You know, you should have another book. Or maybe you want to do some CDs about how to help people get over infidelity. And I thought, I don't know. I think this is it. I've, I've written my piece. That's it. Then I got cancer for the second time. And stuff started pouring out of me like deli diarrhea. I had to have notebooks wherever I went. And so I wrote my second book. And that one hasn't been published yet. That one is, is going to come out in 2021. But that one was called Hotel Chemo, My Wild Ride Through Breast Cancer and Infidelity. And both of those books were comic self-help sort of memoir too. The second book is more of a memoir than the first. Um, because the first book I wrote after writing down what I felt, but also interviewing a lot of other people about their experiences, both people who had been unfaithful and people who had been cheated upon. I wanted to get both sides of it. And I definitely wanted to get humor in there. I actually have cartoons in both of these books. And the cartoons are a huge part of it. Because, you know, in my six part program of how I dug myself out of the whole of this, this, this horrible situation I was in, laughter was a big part of it. Laughter therapy is, is absolutely huge. Because if you don't laugh, you're going to cry. And I'm sure you were in the same situation when you were trying to get yourself out of out of uh, alcoholism, right? <laughs> so true, so true. And it is uh, oh, your story is amazing. Uh, it you think, oh my God, what a bastard! Uh, and uh, that is sort of my initial my initial response. Having said that. Having said that, when I look back at my younger years, I was exactly that. I was That's shallow, right. self-centered. Uh, it was, it, it was, I was brought up to believe that a man is defined by the, the number of conquests that he has as a young man. That was in the 80s. That was what my father my stepfather believed, and that was probably what my father, my, my biological father, believed too. Uh, that was the 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 way it was for me, and unfortunately, I became quite good in that. Um, so, <laughs> so, and it was it was with hindsight, it was the most shallow life that I could have ever chosen, but I didn't know it then. But nowadays, there is a depth to my life that is deeper than the deepest part of the of the ocean on earth and that is something i cherish and I, it's a bit of a shudder that i look back at the old times but it is what it is i was certainly emotionally immature to the nth degree if you were to look back at your relationship with your husband you guys had this kind of whirlwind romance the, the being swept off your feet in China in a re, in a place where uh, it was all exciting, etc. Once things started settling down, half a year, a year down the line, and the the honeymoon chitters, the the, the crazy 
cringing of the stomach whenever you see your loved one, once that is sort of passed away and you realize that he actually farts like everyone else and that uh, when all that sort of, you know, dies down, how did things go then? What were sort of the first hurdles and how did you respond to them as a, as a, as a team? Well, my ex was quite a demanding guy um, who was extremely good in his field. And so I spent a lot of my time ministering to him, ministering to the business we set up together, running the house, dealing with the children. So it was a sort of full on nose to the grindstone type of existence. And at the time, I didn't realize there was anything um, wrong with that. But coming out of it now, I feel like I definitely subsumed my personality. I gave, a lot, gave up a lot of what I really was. However, I will say that I didn't write that book as a hatchet job on my ex. And I don't, I, I don't agree with the views that a lot of people have when they've been so-called betrayed by their, by their exes, that one minute the person that the, the, one minute the person is the love of their life. And then after the infidelity, they're the devil incarnate. Well, it's the same person. And yes, they're a pretty flawed human being. But there's obviously something that was good in there that kept you in the relationship for that amount of time and made you choose to marry them in the first place. So I, I have to say I have a much more nuanced view about, about it. And so it's important, again, and that's why I didn't want to get stuck into that revenge blame cycle, because usually when you have issues in a relationship, there is some kind of dynamic going on. And I'm not saying that um, the person who's been cheated upon is is always the one to blame and it's 100% her fault, you know, and, and no wonder he went out and, 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 and had affairs because she was so terrible. You know, you hear these, these stories. Maybe in some cases that's true, um, but yet usually um, that's not quite the case, although there's, there is some kind of dynamic. If our relationship had been perfect and full of love, um, 100%, obviously um, this wouldn't have happened, but uh, clearly it wasn't. And for whatever reasons, I wasn't providing him with uh, everything he wanted. And in the say, by the same token, he definitely wasn't providing me with, with what I wanted. And one of the things that I wrote about, which wasn't specifically um, a problem of ours, it was a temporary problem when, when the children were young and taking up a lot of my energy. But one big issue that creates infidelity is celibate marriages. And I spoke to so many women who, whose marriages had slid into celibacy. And some of them were quite happy about it. Oh, I couldn't be asked with that anymore. One of my friends told me, oh, I, oh God, I don't want to do that. Ugh. And this was somebody who was one of the most promiscuous people at, at university. I was at university with this particular person whom I won't name. But um, And her husband might well want to continue having marital relations, but she's not interested. So what would somebody do in those circumstances? You might want to say, if you ain't getting fit at home, you're going to go for a takeout. 
you know so you you do you just don't know and you don't know what the what the dynamics are between people another friend of mine who was very much in love with her husband um he had severe depression issues was put on an antidepressant and what it did was completely slam his libido and he just no and not only slammed his libido but um gave him ed so that was the end of their sex life and she very regretfully ended up having affairs because she was a, a sexual being. So in those cases, you know, I don't think you can judge. So I have to say that infidelity is a very, very nuanced story. It's not black and white. You And it's easy to sort of point your finger at somebody and judge, but you don't necessarily know the whole story. Similar to you, when you were writing about your alcoholism story, your view is very different from your wife's because she was seeing it from the outside. You were just seeing it from the inside. And normally we all want to be the hero of our own story. So we're going to paint probably a much more sanitized view of, of what we've done than what somebody else might see. So true. So true, CJ. Um, for the readers, and um, not readers, for the, the listeners and the viewers out there, um, ED uh, refers to erectile dysfunction. That means that, that as a man, you don't get stiff, you don't get hard uh, anymore for a, a huge number of reasons. Um, so just to, to clarify that. And what CJ is referring to in this little story there, I uh, in my book, But just prior to coming on, we were discussing uh, our story as authors uh, and our experiences. And I, I described the little vignette that when I wrote my book, My Steps to Sobriety, there was one chapter in there on postnatal depression and as a challenge. And I wrote the story that how I remembered it from um, how my wife was hit with postnatal depression. And I wrote it and I thought, well, that's a good chapter, very honest, etc. And then I gave it to my wife to read and she had a hissy fit. So we had a big, big row there <laughs> because she, for her, she, in her mind, it was rather different. So I love the way you said sanitized. Um, so her focus, her brain, had focused on other aspects of it. Now, that was a time when I was still drinking. So certainly my drinking had not been very, very helpful in, in her postnatal depression. And it didn't make a blind bit of difference that I was the one who was up every night with the little one and, and, and spending many sleepless nights whilst she was um, being uh, treated, unfortunately, inappropriately with a medication that, that really turned her into a zombie. So... Uh, there we were. So we had some dis very distinct, different points of views on exactly the same topic. And I think that is the same when it comes to, to many relationships and to many issues. It takes two to tango. So if there is infidelity, it is very, very, very rare that it is only truly hand on heart one person. There is always more to it. And always remember that, guys and girls out there, if someone tells you a story, please listen to the story and then ask yourself, 
why has that person told me that story? And there is always a, a motivation behind it. There's always something. And, and often enough, it's, it's that we want to make ourselves feel good and that we maybe want to really believe a story while standing on your heart, you know, it's a little bit fudged and it's a little bit wrong. But if, if you just keep repeating the same story again and again, hopefully you hope it will become truth. And that's it's a slippery slope. So always, always think, why is someone telling you that? And that, of course, of course, applies to every news bit you read. Okay. So sorry if I'm if I'm talking about journalism at the moment. Oh, sadly, <laughs> journalism is in a very different place from where it was when I was working for the BBC. Is it not? Is it? Oh not? goodness, no. yes. Yeah. So no, <laughs> Back it's, in the 80s. Yeah. oh please, and it's just going back to that. It's just such an amazing thing. Just in 10, 15 years prior to you being there, uh, there was Mao Zedong. There was the, the, the whole, the whole, uh, let's get rid of the foreigners and let's do this, this new China where, wow, how many million people died in the long march? He, and, and he, he managed to set up a, an entire police state. From the, the entire country was, was a, a prison police state in effect. Exactly. Uh, and during you, the Cultural Revolution in particular. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. And so therefore, if you now imagine you living there, you can imagine the adrenaline. You can imagine the the adventure that was going there. And then you meet this man. And so there is suddenly this kind of, my that's, that's a Hollywood film waiting to be made. Come on. <laughs> Honestly, someone wrote that script already somewhere. Again, there's a bit of spy there. He's probably, you know, he's probably an American spy. That oh, well, there you go. CIA <laughs> yeah, and all yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, but you, 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 you see that. It's, it's when you're somewhere out there and you, you fall in love with that person, uh, especially if he's a go-getter, if he's a, a, a man of, of, of mana. Uh, oh, yes, he was. And he spoke fluent Chinese, which was very helpful because my Chinese was, mm, I could manage, but wasn't fluent by any stretch of the imagination. Oh, there you go. So it is, it's intriguing. So you, you got in, got together with one man and then you both developed and you both morphed. And I'm sure things changed, uh, over time, but you were nose on the grindstone, as you quite rightly said, and busy, busy, busy. And what, what stuck out was that little side sentence a few moments ago when you said that you lost yourself that you forgot who you really were because life became so busy and that's right you that's didn't right. you didn't pay attention to the one person that really really needed it that was you yourself that's right and what i did um when this happened i decided that i needed to find myself a circle of friends again. Um, that was one of the most important things. First of all, finding confidants, because so many of the people that we knew were either his friends or they were involved in the business that we had set up. Yeah. So I'm very much into trying to be professional and I'm not going to be airing dirty laundry to people that, that we work with and complaining about my ex when he's a main part of, of our business. That's just not professional. So I didn't really have anyone that I could vent to. So I found people that I could vent to. They were friends. Some people could do it, do it by paying a counselor or 
getting advice from somebody who does marital counseling and that kind of thing. But I just happened to be able to find friends who provided me with good advice, were good listeners, and were going to keep things confidential. So finding good confidants is not the same as finding good friends. It's a, it's a different thing. You definitely need it. And I felt that I needed both male and female confidants because you get a very, very different view talking to a man than talking to a woman, particularly about issues like infidelity. So that was really important. And then also I wanted to rebuild my circle of friends. And to give you an example of, of how I'd let go of all my friends, I had a very close friend in England and I was at university with her. She'd sent me emails over the years and I hadn't responded because I'd been so busy with my stuff, with taking care of my ex, the business and the kids and the house and all of that stuff. She genuinely thought she had done something to offend me. Oh. Because I hadn't responded to her to her emails. And that was a wake-up call for me. I thought, I'm going to revisit all my friends. I'm going to make sure I reconnect with all my friends, ex-boyfriends, people I work with, leave no stone unturned, rebuild my circle. And it was mega because one of the people that I rebuilt my connections with was somebody I used to work with in the BBC in London. And he became a significant other. In fact, um, we are involved in a really very, very lovely relationship together. Um, but the big problem is that he's in London and I'm here. I'm in California and he's 6,000 miles away in London. We're both under lockdown in totally different cities. But apart from that, uh, it's been really very nice. And I hadn't seen him for 35 years when I reconnected. And we just got along so well and things just started to happen. So that was really good. But I didn't reconnect with people. I didn't do these things in order to just immediately find a boyfriend. Uh, that wasn't my aim. My aim was just to build a circle. And I also decided that I needed to find my passion. So I joined groups. I joined, you know, meetup groups. I um, did things that I enjoyed. I wanted to have activities again that, that were things for me rather than things that were connected to my family or my ex. And that way I found like-minded people and I made some really good friends through that as well. So that was an important part of my rebuilding, so to speak, finding the confidants, building a community and um, finding a, a passion. And I realized that one of my passions was writing and that's where that that book and the uh, cancer book and the adultery book both came from. So those, those are important things. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to do was to um, make sure I loved my body again, love my body and become beautiful basically is what you need to do. And that's not just things about diet and exercise. It's also an attitude of mind. And there's an example I can give you of that, which I think says it in such a strong way. When I first found out that my ex was having an affair with a woman that was half his age and barely older than my oldest son, it made me feel old and ugly right away. Right away. I mean, I had been feeling okay. I didn't feel like I was, I just felt neutral about my body. But when I found out about that, immediately it made me feel old and ugly. And then once I started my relationship with, with this wonderful guy in London, 
he makes me feel young and sexy. It's the same body. It's just an attitude of mind. That's the only thing that's changed, you know? Um, and obviously it helps to have somebody that validates a nice view of your body. But the fact is your attitude towards your body is in your head. It isn't really anything to do with how you, how you look in an objective sense. So it's, it's really important to, uh, to be aware of those things and to try and work on them. And the other thing that I found that was really important, and I know you've spoken about this with um, quite a number of other guests on your show, it's about living in the present and becoming more mindful. Because so much of the time, even if you don't have a problem with alcoholism, if you don't have a problem with a splintering marriage, if you don't have a problem with cancer and the possibility of dying and all of that, so many of us are not living in the present. We're churning around about what happened in the past and worrying about it, or we're worrying about stuff in the future. Well, how am I going to manage? How is this going to work out? What am I going to do about this? And what if this turns up? And what if that happens? And none of that is real. The only thing you have is the now, is what's right in front of you. But so few of us are actually living in that and enjoying it. And in fact, one of the things that I have on my website, adulteresswife.com, is a free mini ebook called Overcoming Infidelity Tools to Tame the Roller Coaster of Negative Emotions. And one of the things in there is an exercise to become more mindful. And I have to tell you about it because. I'm a recovering chocoholic, not an alcoholic, but a chocoholic. And this is a mindfulness exercise that involves using chocolate. And you involve all your senses in this chocolate. Oh, yes. Um, I'm not going to go through the whole thing because you can get you can get it from the from the ebook. But you start off by looking at Maybe you can get one of those lovely Lindor balls, which are really good, or, or a Hershey's Kiss or something like that. You have it in your hand and you look at it and you enjoy the, the colors of the wrapper and the feel of it in your hand. And then so the next thing you do is you unwrap it and you listen to the crinkling of the wrapper and you just get totally involved in focusing on all of these things. And then you smell it and you just Enjoy the smell of the chocolate. And you also have the, the feel, the touch of it in your hand, how it feels in your hand. And you're probably dying to eat this, but it takes a while to get, get around to eat the chocolate. But you do put it in your mouth and you feel it in your mouth and you just slowly feel the flavor of it. You taste it. And each stage, you're really being mindful and you're using all your senses. And eventually, you can swallow the chocolate and eat it. But this was an exercise. I didn't make it up. It came from, they use it um, with uh, school children in England. So if kids in, in England can do it and become more mindful in the process, I'm sure we adults can do it too. But it's a great exercise because it teaches you to become more mindful. And instead of just, oh, this is a, this is a nice piece of chocolate, gulping it down, you can slowly enjoy every aspect of eating that chocolate and it's um it, it's it's a, it's a useful process because it's one that i continually have to, have to remind myself it's not like i've fixed it i do some mindfulness exercises and 
suddenly I'm mindful all the time. It's it's definitely a work in progress, but it's well worth it because otherwise you're never, never really living. You're just worrying about the past and you're worrying about the future and not living in the present. And it's so important to smell the roses that are right in front of you. <laughs> and could you imagine if you do exactly the same thing with your partner to actually look at oh, him yes. or her and actually pay that attention to him or her and just experience it. it. Let's call it it, okay? Yes. <laughs> the relationship. Uh, and could you imagine if what that means for your partner that you actually listen to him, that you actually watch him and say, you know, you're looking actually really good today. That little thing, wow, where did this step come from? Normally we are fighting about who's doing the washing up and now you're telling me I look good. What do you want? What have you, have you, have you banked the car? What happened? <laughs> okay. And that is sort of the typical response out of that. What happened? Who are you? And what have you done to my wife? Um, so, <laughs> so how about using the same principle of mindfulness for your life? Because I 100% agree with you. And I try to, to be on the same path like you. And it takes work. You need to, to, to practice that and practice that. But one of the things that I, I do sometimes, and it's just rediscover who am I married to? And my wife always speaks, what the hell is he doing? So looking and talking. And, and it's a beautiful, intimate moment. And it is just lovely. It has nothing to do with sex. It has nothing to do with anything. It's just intimacy because you pay 100% attention to your partner. So guys, well, it also does It does make sex a lot better, let me tell you, if you're mindful <laughs> during sex. There's Touché. no question about that. <laughs> Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> oh, no, that's beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, when, you, when you look back at your relationship, what would be the one thing, if you, if you had a time machine and you could go back, would there be anything different or would you make any significant change? And if so, what one change would you do? You're talking about my relationship with my ex, right? Correct, correct. That's a really difficult one because in a way that implies I regret my relationship with him in some way mm. that something that we did was 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 wrong mm. but in some ways regret is about the past mm. uh, it, sorry no regret is not about the past regret is about the present because if i weren't happy with my present i would re regret the past people who are happy with their present don't tend to regret the past because it's brought them to where they are now so okay. I, I'm actually ha very happy with where I am now. And mm. so if I had changed something in our relationship, would it have brought me to where I am now? Mm. Um, given that I'm happy with where I am now, I don't regret that relationship. And I don't, I'm thinking about mm. things that I could have changed. I'm sure there are plenty of things that I could have done better. Um, you know, sometimes I regret 
the way that I may have brought up my children. And um, uh, one ridiculous thing that I regret was that um, my my ex would have nothing to do with housework. He was terribly messy. Um, he wouldn't have anything to do with cooking. He wouldn't have anything to do with cleaning up. He just expected in, in many ways to be served in, in those. In, and um, my children, it was a sort of losing battle to try and teach them how to how to cook and how to keep their rooms tidy and how to keep everything else tidy and to to clean up and all of that they they did a bit they always in their minds they think they did a lot more than I reckon that they did but the result was that we had enough money so I hired the cleaner and I jokingly would say to them you know if I didn't have the cleaner I'd not only divorce my husband but I'd divorce my children as well <laughs> but in retrospect I'm thinking well you know Maybe I should have tried harder there because if I had trained them properly, they wouldn't be such messy individuals now and they would probably be able to cook better. So, I mean, that's not really to do with my relationship with my ex. In some ways it is because he didn't really support me on that. He just couldn't be bothered to do any of the cleaning. He just, well, that's not, he was very good at his job. He worked very hard. I don't want to criticize that, but he had absolutely nothing to do with anything else. So in some ways, uh, that would be my, when I think about a regret, that is a re regret because I think I would have made my children in some ways more functional or uh, better partners for their, for their respective um, wives-to-be because then they would be not <laughs> expecting them to do the cleanup. <laughs> do you know, there is a... Uh, a uh, um, outburst written down oh this young generation look at them how they are talking how upsetting they're, they're eating with their mouth wide open they are they're oh my god and it sounds like like exactly what you just said and exactly what you hear all from all around us in reality, it was written by Plato 3,000 years ago. No, that's and, right. That's right. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. So, so I think you're just describing the curse of parenthood uh, because whatever we do, our children will rebel against it. They will be doing the opposite. Um, your, your fight is just other way around in my relationship with my wife. I want my, I always wanted to be more strict with the kids and uh, my wife had come from a, a strict upbringing uh, and said, no, 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 no. So she was very much against it. And uh, yeah, I regret that I was not more forceful in creating functional young beings. But then I look at friends who have been very forceful and see how their children rebelled against them. And I have to say, for crying out loud, this is you're losing that battle. However, that battle plays right, out, right? Because whatever your expectations, whatever your expectations are, they will not be fulfilled. And it's a matter of of how do you deal with that, and where do you draw the line in the set? Um, so it is. I guess there are certain things you can't you can't undo, but I guess you can be there for them when the wheels are coming off, and you don't have to say. I told you so because they bloody well know um, exactly <laughs> what <laughs> what I would have said and what I would have done. And they didn't do it that way and then said, mm, actually, Dad, mm, 
<laughs> it is what it is, guys. So, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Oh, CJ, um, wow, your story. But I mean, what what really shines, what 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 really stands out, is the fact that you are now such a different woman, and that you you have come through completely different circumstances than me. Yet there were challenges there and obstacles there that dragged you down and put you into some very, very dark places. And here you are now sharing the joy of your living, the the passion with which you tackle every moment of your life as it is. And I think that is the resounding aftermath of many, many stories. Virtually everyone I've got here onto my my show, we are all defined by this joy, by this passion, by the fact that we have created our own visions and chipped away at a model until we are getting close to that vision. Uh, and then we redefine it and it's a new model block and we're going to chip away again. But we have seen that giving up is just not an option. Because when you give up and, and you lean on the crutch of alcohol or gambling or sex addiction or whatever other addiction you choose or medication you choose to numb your pain, well, sorry, uh, that's... That will be a crutch and that might work for a few weeks. Okay. Um, but thereafter, hell, if you, if you don't recreate yourself, show the love that you deserve to yourself, then you will, you will continue to be in misery when really you shouldn't be. Yes, life has, has, has given you lemons. Yes, shit has happened. And bad shit has happened, please. There is some really bad shit going on out there in this world as we speak. And for you, this would have been, you know, there was your life, 25 years of marriage. And suddenly you find that text. Damn it. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a blow that, that would have sent you reeling. And what could be worse than that for you in that moment? So please, and there, for all of you out there, there will be, you will be reeling from some trauma right now. But well, actually, what was worse than that was getting cancer on top. Yeah, well. <laughs> and because was that was the double whammy because with cancer, you've got your life at stake. I mean, infidelity isn't necessarily fatal unless you really decide that yeah. you can't live anymore and you make the choice, which yeah. is not the right decision at all. Mm. But um, cancer is definitely a sort of Damocles hanging over your head, mm. um, particularly in my case because I had the BRCA gene, um, a nice little gift from my Jewish ancestors. Thank you very much. Mm. But um, it was my second occurrence and it was a worse occurrence than the one before. So that was very, very jarring because it came when I thought I was getting over the hump of dealing with the infidelity. I had just started the relationship mm. with this wonderful man in London mm. and I thought everything was going to be fine. But then it was very, very new. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, he's not going to want he sees me maybe as a beautiful, uh, sexy lady. And now I'm I'm going to be a, a chemo bald zombie type. How is that going to play out? But he actually stepped up to the plate and he was really 
very, very loving and caring throughout that process. Um, although a lot of that was long distance because I, I was, I was in California having the chemo when he was in London. He came to visit me afterwards, but that was a, a huge, huge additional blow. And a lot of the negativity that I'd been feeling when I found out about the infidelity came pouring back in when I got that second diagnosis of breast cancer. Yeah. Uh, and I ended up using those same tools that I'd used before, the confidants, the community of friends, trying to have some laughter therapy. Um, for instance, I wouldn't listen to the news, too depressing. I stopped listening to the news. Um, somebody invited me to go see a, um, a movie called Wild with Reese with, with a Spoon. It's supposed to be a great movie, but it's about somebody dealing with depression. Mm. I thought, no, 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 no. I don't need that when I'm going through bloody chemo. Thank you very much. I need comedies. Mm. Go back to my Monty Python, which I love, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, so, so I had to go back to the whole, through the whole thing again to get over that um problem because if you don't if you don't crumble with something like that it does make you stronger but you have to really work at not crumbling and there is this issue of post-traumatic growth versus ptsd and it's a genuine thing that happens adversity can make you stronger if you can get through it, it makes you stronger and it makes you a different person. Hmm. Maybe it makes you a more mature and a more compassionate person, especially going through a, a sort of near-death experience of dealing with cancer, maybe. I mean, luckily, so far, I'm, I'm okay. But with cancer, you know, you're always okay till you're not. It's a, they say you're in remission rather than saying you're cured. But you know, you can go out in the street and get run over by a car. So you just can't. You, nobody knows um, how long their lifespan is going to be. But that was that was a, a hell of a blow to deal with on top of the infidelity, I think. But because of that, I think it really brought home to me that now is the time. If I don't do what I want now, when am I going to be able to do it? Strike while the iron is hot, all of those cliches. You are, you, all you have is now. Don't worry about the future. Just imagine what would happen if you didn't have a tomorrow. You better make the most out of your today. Um, that reminds me of something that you say, which I think is a great phrase where you say you want your yesterday to be jealous of your today. I think that's, that's a terrific way of looking at it. And in many ways, I feel that that's the case for me. And the only reason it is because you actively work on your skills and you actively work on your emotions. You try to figure out why you're feeling the way you're feeling. And if it is something that you think, okay, today is a sad day because I have been completely exhausted because I burned a candle on, on both ends. And today is just that your body says, stop it stop, you need to watch Netflix and eat chocolate and do nothing else, then it is what it is. Okay. And, but there are other days when you might say, well, actually, do I really want to feel that sad? Or do I actually want to take steps towards, towards another feeling? Uh, things like that. It's the mindfulness. It's the insights into how you tick, but you have done the work 
and you have done the work out of necessity because you had this double whammy delivered to you. But you have done the work one way or the other, and now you are equipped with a tool set that is remarkable, that is wonderful, that is powerful. And I, I am so pleased for you to hear that transformation because there are so many of us out here who are still stuck in, in the rot, in the problems. The, people can only see the problem and they can't see solutions. They are only asking, why me, why me? Not how can I grow out of that? How can I move forward from that? And that is, that is sort of the different mindset. But you can't develop that mindset if you have never been in trouble. So. That's true. That's true. I think that it, it definitely helps you grow. Yeah. And it's interesting you say, why me? Because with the cancer thing, you know, you could, I could have said, well, why me? Why do I have to have cancer? But then as I did my research for the book that I've just completed, uh, Hotel Chemo, My Wild Ride Through Breast Cancer and Infidelity, when I looked at uh, the number of things that have been said to cause cancer, I mean, almost everything seems to cause cancer. From having a sedentary job to all kinds of things that you can eat, to pollution, to not having enough sleep, to having stress. Well, let's try and avoid all stress. You know, I mean, maybe you can go and live on a mountain and just have spring water and and fresh air and and then, then maybe you won't get cancer. But pretty much everything gives you cancer. So I came to the conclusion that, wow, it's amazing I didn't get cancer before this time because everything gives you cancer so the why me doesn't really doesn't really cut it at all but it's um it's a it's a difficult thing and and I'm finding even now with so much so many of my friends who are dealing with the lockdown the COVID lockdown are getting more depressed than ever before uh, because they're sort of stuck inside they're concerned about going to see people so they're losing their community and just talking to people on zoom is really not the same as as hugging your friends i'm sorry it just doesn't it's just not the same but for me one of the things that i found the most important for getting out of a sort of depressive feeling of lethargy was actually outdoor exercise going outside especially in places where you've got nature trees and greenery and, and and fresh air and all of that absolutely huge i found that if i um was feeling down and i stayed inside and i you know watched shows on the computer and all of that it, it just sort of makes you feel overstimulated and lethargic and just just like everything is is an effort and nothing is pleasant it doesn't really make you feel good but just going outside just going outside was huge and it's interesting that one of the the things i wrote about in in my adulterer's wife book adulterer's wife how to thrive whether you stay or not were, was about people's attitude towards their bodies um and i've, I've spoken about that earlier but uh there was a woman who was running a uh a group of a group with a lot of women who um, had self-esteem issues and most of them they were asked to all strip off and even the stunning looking ones all thought there was something wrong with their body you know my breasts are too small my breasts are too big my I've got too much of a belly my butt's too big I'm just I've got no figure I'm unattractive anyway but interestingly the women that exercised 
had the best view of their own body, irrespective of whether they were overweight or not. The women that exercised in that group, I think her name was Betty Dodson. I'm trying to remember the name of the lady. I think her name was Betty Dodson. And she was a very famous therapist um, back in the 70s, I believe, something like that. Anyway, she was saying that those women who exercised had much more self-esteem and they had a better view of their bodies. And that's very interesting because if you get out there and move, and I think that it makes an even bigger difference to get out there and move outside where you're breathing fresh air and the more nature, the better. That is a great recipe for feeling better. I think it works better than any antidepressant. At least that's my view. (laughs) And there is very much a, a strong body of evidence to suggest that that light therapy, i.e. you getting out and physical exercise, uh, you actually uh, getting your heart rate up, makes such a difference. And uh, from now and then, I've had very quite literally this experience where I was in a really sorry state as far as my mood was concerned. And I left the house and there was this beautiful, bright sunshine and the warmth of the sun rays on my skin and the, the bit of squinting to get your eyes used to the, to the bright light. And by the moment I, I was sitting in the car and started driving, I realized that that half of my sorrows were gone. And then the, I put the window down and the wind was blowing in and and I, I felt the breeze on my skin and I felt this smile creeping over my face. And you think, come on, come on. Ten minutes ago, I was, I was in a pity party. And now suddenly, <laughs> by just actually getting out there and just physically exposing yourself to this beautiful ball of light up there into the, in the sky, it was so powerful. And I, I remember this this kind of transformation happening as if as if a magic wand is somehow flicked there. And hey, guys, try it out. And when I say try it out, make it a micro habit. Make it a point that you actually get out there and take a few moments. It doesn't take much. And right now it's sort of winter time here, so. The sun often just gets up and I get to work and I sort of park my car and sometimes it's just literally the sun is rising and I stop myself. I stop myself a minute and just stand there back on the shoulder and just observe the sun coming up and and smell the, the air, smell the trees around me outside of the hospital. And it is a very grounding beautiful beautiful thing but what is it it is mindfulness i cherish that moment i savor that moment for what it is no one's shooting at me i'm not dying of anything at the moment at least that i know about and (laughs) it it is you know it is that moment right now and there is a beauty there and that's appreciated for what it is so again it is ultimately we, we are all i mean every single guests I've got on this show will essentially reflect on the same things. So guys, if you don't have these experiences out there, regardless why, because of depression, PTSD, uh, alcohol or substance use, whatever it is, 
that at the moment is hindering you from coming to the place where we all are, then it's time. So if there's one thing you take away from this interview today, it's time for you to start asking, what do I want to be when I grow up? And that it doesn't matter if you're 70 or 17, uh, you want to be probably a, a very happy person, full of joy and full of fulfillment. And there is there are ways to get there. So you don't necessarily need to wait for a big, a big, um, a big disaster to hit you like cancer or infidelity or whatever it is. There will be enough disasters waiting for you guys. You know that, but you might as well learn the skills in order to actually get there. And I mean, one way to do it. I mean, if you talk coming back to you, CJ, I mean, infidelity is such an issue. You have got 50% of marriages failing nowadays. You have got a throwaway culture. So if something doesn't work anymore, well, it goes onto the tip. And we're no longer used to mending things. And I think that also applies to relationships. We are no longer used to actually mending them. The, the self, self importance, the, the focus on ourselves in all the wrong ways. With that, I now not mean self love, but actually it's me, me, me. I'm important. I'm that. And your partner is a given, is a, is someone who, who does the washing, who does the cleaning up, who does that, you know, like in your case. So, nah, 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 nah. That is, I think that is, it's interesting when you, when you listen to couples who have been together 75 years, 60 years, things like that, married for a long, long time. And you ask them, why are you like that? A lot of them will say, well, you know, it has never been only roses. But we made a commitment and we worked on it. We worked as in active steps, not just how we live together instead of happened that we lived together for six years, not 60 years. It doesn't work like that. You have to work on, on your life. You have to work on relationships. You have to work on your recovery. So here you go. It is, uh, it's all about active steps and CJ. And- you know, one thing I would say is that even if you don't ever have a problem with alcoholism, it's a very, very addictive world these days. So much is is designed to be addictive, not just food like sugar, for instance, is at least as addictive as, as alcohol and damaging to your health. But also social media is designed to be addictive. And people get very, very worked up about Facebook posts, Twitter, Twitter posts, all of that, and spend hours and hours and hours of their time managing their profiles and writing these posts and in many ways not engaging with real life. And it doesn't make them happy at all. It makes them in, in many ways divorced from the real world. They may have hundreds of Facebook friends, but do they have any real, true, genuine flesh and blood friends? That's, that's, that's the problem. Uh, and there's so many ways to get addicted. Some people just get addicted to playing solitaire and they, they, they spend hours and hours of their time on solitaire or other people spend hours and hours of time on video games. 
I remember when I was in, in uh, talking to uh, people in China, even in China, they have programs now to try to um, fix kids that have become totally addicted to video games. Mm. So there are so many ways to get addicted and so many ways that the commercial world tries to get people addicted. It's almost like you have to get yourself into an oasis away from it to be able to survive and become a, a, a happy functioning human being that, that that's enjoying your life. So, so there are a lot of pitfalls that we have to be aware of. Many of those were not around when I was growing up um, in the, you know, in the, I, I don't necessarily want to admit how long ago, but you know, in those days, um, we didn't have computers. Um, we didn't have any uh, cyber bullying because the cyber did not exist. Um, so, uh, and it, we didn't have, um, you know, TV wasn't even on that much. It, there were there were very restricted hours that you could even watch watch television. So, it's a very very different world. There's so many ways that you can be sucked in, and you can find that your life is taken away by by all of these things, and you're not really living. So true. So guys, I think we have we have given you the, the way forward. We have shown you what worked for CJ. We have shown you what worked for me. The question is, why not give it a shot? Why not why not try the same techniques? Why not buy CJ's book and, and have a read and, and, and see what her journey is like? And see if you can learn from that. Why not buy my book and, and see what the action plans are all about? And go out there and and apply the same principles to your life. No one can live your life for you. You can meet life coaches until the cows come home if you don't apply the lessons to your own life and take active steps to get yourself into the right place, the right frame of mind, the right, the right place where you can give yourself permission to love yourself. If you don't get there, then you will be stuck wherever you're stuck now. And that's probably a shame. There is such a beautiful life out there. CJ, thank you so much for coming onto my show. I really, really, really appreciated your time, uh, your effort, and and your willingness to share some very intimate insights and 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 your private life, which is which is you know we all cherish our our privacy, yet we all can learn so much from each other when we start opening up and being humble and realizing how much we actually can give to the people out there by sharing our story and i think that's the, that's what the two of us are doing well so let's keep going there one interview after another and hopefully with that we can change minds we can change hearts and we make this world a little bit better out there one interview after the other day Thank you so much and keep doing what you're doing because I think you're helping an awful lot of people. Oh, that's very kind of you to say, CJ. Out there, you look after yourself, all guys. Take care. Bye. Dreamer.